0: this is Lauren Weiner and this is Winning with Connection, WWC's podcast on small business issues in government contracting. I am here with Leslie Lever, who is the guru of all things proposals and proposal management and getting through that proposal process that is the only way you get government contracts. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. You've done a few podcasts, but How did you get into this? Can you give me a little bit of your background, what your firm is, and and how you got yourself into this chaos of
1: proposal writing and proposal management? Certainly. um, First, good morning, Lauren, and thank you for having me. In answer to your question, I have been doing federal government proposals since getting into the GovCon industry back in 1998, started out working for some of the larger firms. Uh, SAIC, Grant Thornton, and in 2011, started my own consulting firm, Strategic Business Solutions, where we provide full-service proposal solutions to companies of all sizes, small businesses that maybe don't have an internal proposal center, and larger businesses that may find themselves uh, lacking the bandwidth to bid on everything in their pipeline, so Started out as a manager helping companies with their proposals and now do it for clients who are looking to grow their footprint in the federal government with federal government contracts.
0: And I will say you have done that kind of escape valve or, or release valve for us when we had too many proposals. I think there were been a couple of times that we've had five or six proposals and not enough proposal Managers to, to write to them all. So I think you just put one in for us last week, right?
1: We got an extension. So we're, we're still working that one. Oh, God love you.
0: Um, so, so we'll talk in another podcast, uh, later about how to find these bids and, and where to find them, be it on fed biz Ops or through vehicles. That you've, you've been awarded, which tends to be a better way of, of getting it and, and less competitive, uh, or kind of less scattershot. But I want to talk to you about once you've found an interesting bid opportunity. So you we're we're coming at this at the point where they've, these, these firms have identified either an RFP or a pre-RFP or an RFI. And they've decided they want to bid it. I guess let's let's talk about it as an RFP uh, and they decide they want to bid it. So they've pulled down all the documents from wherever they found this uh, RFP. What do they do? What's the next what, what's the first step in reviewing an RFP to decide if you want to go after it?
1: Well, I would be remiss if I didn't start by saying that ideally you are tracking an RFP long before it becomes an RFP and that you are working with the customer to identify what their issues are and um, shaping the requirements. Not everyone can do that, and it takes resources, so a lot of small businesses often don't get into the proposal process, having done capture, sufficient capture. And so a lot of times when I get pulled in, it is very close to RFP release, if not immediately after an RFP has been released. So depending upon your role in the proposal, um, you'll look at different things first. So for me, as a generally my, my personal role, is usually the proposal manager. Now we bring resources in, all types of resources depending upon what our clients need. But as a proposal manager, the first thing I'm going to look at is sections. Well, I want to look at the uh, the SF33 if that's if it comes with that to find out when the thing is due. But I'm going straight to the instructions. And the evaluation criteria. So in a traditional federal government RFP, those are sections L and M. I want to know as a proposal manager how big this effort is, how many volumes, how many pages, what are the requirements that I need to zero in on as a proposal manager. If you're a technical writer, if your role on the proposal is to, um, to be a technical writer, then in all likelihood, you're going to look first at the statement of work or the performance work statement, which is Section C of the RFP, because you want to know what you're writing to. If you're the company trying to decide, are we going to bid this thing, you are essentially looking at the entire RFP. You can ill afford to ignore any part of it, because it's going to tell you what the requirements are. It's going to tell you what you have to do on award, what the contract clauses are that you need to be aware of post award. And so you really have to read the entire RFP uh, cover to cover.
0: Right. So going
1: back to the first part of it in terms
0: of really knowing that this is coming out well before it comes out and and hopefully shaping how it comes out. I, I hear a whole lot of businesses who go on to FedBizOps, uh, which is, again, the Wild West of, of government contracting, and say, hey, I could do that work, and and they're too late, right?
1: In many cases, yeah, because in most bids for federal government work, the scope of work it can be fairly large, and your organization may not be able to cover down on all the requirements, which means that you're going to have to team with other companies who have complementary capabilities so that together you can cover down on all of the requirements? Because you can't put in a bid and and expect to get an award if you cannot perform to all of the requirements. So, teaming takes time, and uh, and those those teaming agreements need to be ironed out before the RFP is released, or you're going to waste cycles and time trying to negotiate teaming agreements and and lose valuable proposal writing time. Um, But the other thing is, especially for small businesses, if you get in early enough before an RFP is released, when we talk about shaping requirements, in many cases, if the government isn't even considering a small business set aside by talking to the government early, you can Direct I won't say direct, you can help the government um, explore the feasibility of a small business set aside or a hub zone or an eight a or any any other of the numerous uh, economic designations that are out there. so you can very um, strategically shape the competitive landscape by getting in there early and the best advice that I can give any small company is be looking at RFIs, answer every single RFI that is in your wheelhouse, and make the government aware that you exist, because that's how you get uh, what might otherwise come out as a full and open competition, shaped and transitioned to a small business set aside to suit your company. So by RFI, you mean the request
0: for information that come out what what does the government do with those? Um, why, why do they ask for those and what is the importance of those?
1: The government is required by federal acquisition regulation to do um, industry research. And if there are a sufficient number of small businesses that can perform the work, the government is required to explore that um, before releasing to uh, a full and open audience. So um, the government has uh, small business contracting goals, and every agency is is looking to satisfy those goals because they are held to them. And so, if they can um, demonstrate that there are sufficient small businesses to satisfy competition requirements, they're happy to release things as small business set asides to satisfy those goals.
0: Great. So when we talk about this, and this is going to be an entirely different podcast on how to run capture as a small business, how to use uh, small business offices effectively. And I'm hoping to bring a small business, uh, office, uh, manager on, onto our podcast at some point or, uh, an SBA rep. But once you've run capture, let's, let's say we've now got a, a proposal that, or an RFP that came out. That you are at least well aware of and you think you're well situated to go in on it. You've got the team or you don't need a team because you can do everything on this contract. You talked about section L and section M. Section L being the instructions to offers, section M being the evaluation criteria. Before we get into kind of how to, how to rip that apart and put it into a proposal, what are the pieces of section M that are big red flags or big winners for, for you once as you've done capture. At, at that point, you should know what's in there and you should hopefully have influenced what is going to be evaluated so that it is effective for you, right?
1: Absolutely. And, and so the first thing that, um, that I would look at as a potential bidder is, what are the past performance requirements and do we have the past performance necessary to satisfy those requirements? Um, And it's always important to look and see the government does in most cases tell us if we don't have adequate past performance that we'll get a neutral rating, um, that it won't necessarily be held against us. But the point to having past performance for the government is to demonstrate that you can, in fact, perform that work. And the way to demonstrate that is having performed that work before for someone else. So it may be a neutral rating, but it does introduce risk to the government. So you want to make sure that you understand how they're going to be evaluating your proposal, uh, especially in terms of, of risk, so that you can sufficiently assess your probability of getting an award. Bidding federal government opportunities can be very expensive. And so um, you have to be very strategic about which opportunities you pursue. And and you have to be very honest with yourself in terms of, do we realistically have a good chance of getting an award?
0: Great. Um,
1: and then in terms of,
0: there are a couple of things in, in Section M in particular that can be really confusing if you don't understand them. This idea of best value and best value LPTA. <laughs> uh, everyone understands. I-, I think generally when you get into government contracting, LPTA or lowest price technically acceptable. I-, I think most people are starting to understand what that means. But I've seen a number of of, of contracts lately that say best value LPTA. What is LPTA? What is best value LPTA? And what is best value? And how do those differ in terms of how you approach writing a contract or writing a proposal, excuse me, uh, bidding a proposal, figuring out whether or not you've got a good
1: shot at winning a proposal? How, how does that, how does that work? So LPTA, straight up lowest price technically acceptable and, and we, we bid these a lot. Essentially, what the government is telling you is that they're going to look at the price. They're going to rank order every proposal they receive, lowest price to highest price. And once they have them rank ordered by price, lowest to highest, they're going to start with the lowest price proposal they receive, and then they're going to review the technical proposal. And if that proposal, if what the bidder is offering the government is technically acceptable to the government. In other words, it satisfies all the requirements and there is a reasonable expectation that this bidder can perform, then that is a technically acceptable proposal. And the government in many cases won't go any further than that. They will award to that lowest price proposal that is technically acceptable. And and there are many cases in which this makes perfect sense, especially when you consider if there are 30 proposals for one RFP, it takes a lot of government resources to review all of those proposals and evaluate them. So an LPTA means I don't have to read 30. I read the lowest price and I continue moving on until I reach the one that is technically acceptable and I award it. Best value, on the other hand, says... Ideally, I'm looking for a low price solution, but I am willing to pay more if what you're offering me adds commensurate value. So I'm going to be looking not necessarily at the lowest price, but at the, the proposal, the solution that offers the best value to the government for, for what we're going to have to pay. A myriad of that, the, the best value LPTA, I'll be honest with you, in my opinion, it, it seems kind of a misnomer. It, it is a mystery almost. It is, we're going to give the award to the lowest price, but we'll, we'll pay more if, in fact, there is some facet of that proposal that, that adds value that we can justify.
0: I've heard it called, you know, best value is a continuum and at one end of the best value trade-off continuum, they're not trading off anything for the price. Um, so as long as you meet it, you're still on the best value continuum. I, 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 I kind of think that's a little ridiculous as well, but I, I think when they're talking best value LPTA, what I've, what I've understood it to be, and tell me if you, you've heard it differently. It really is just LPTA. They're just saying this is on the best value continuum. But don't be fooled by the fact that it says best value. It is truly an LPTA contract still.
1: So I would tend to agree with you, Lauren, because I think that the government has seen so much pushback from industry on this LPTA that they like to toss in the little best value thing to make industry feel better. Yeah, we'll pay more if if you clearly demonstrate that it's worth it for us to pay more. And then it also kind of covers them a little bit if they award to someone who's not the lowest price and there's a protest. Mm. So I'm inclined to think it has more to do with covering their bases than a Mm. truly technical evaluation methodology.
0: Right. So, you know. There are, there are good reasons to go after LPTA, although, you know, it can be a race to the bottom on price. Um, and particularly it can be a race to the bottom on price in terms of, particularly for service contracts, in terms of salaries and being able to recruit and retain people. The way that they can, or at least some of the ways that they can get around someone who is too bargain basement and is technically acceptable on the, on the technical, and the past performance, um, which is a pass-fail, is by cost realism and cost reasonableness. Yes?
1: Correct. Correct. And and the government's very clear about how they're going to evaluate that, because uh, many agencies have been burned by choosing the lowest price bidder, and then that bidder Getting in and being unable to execute because their salaries were so low that they can't get qualified personnel and they can't keep the personnel that they that they bring on. There's there's a constant churn and turnover. So, um, the government does look at. Uh, and does evaluate the prices to make sure they are both reasonable and, and realistic. So reasonable being they're not too high, realistic
0: being they're not too low.
1: In essence, it, it is, it is some of that, but it, it is also looking at that geographic area, mm-hmm. the labor market in that area. Or it is this realistic that they could actually recruit people at these salaries? So it, it, it's a it's a fairly sophisticated evaluation that the government does in those two areas. Perfect. Okay, so we've gone
0: through. Here's the evaluation. Yes, we think we are. Here are the evaluation criteria in terms of our past performance. In terms of we can write to. We know that we are going to be evaluated, or we think we are going to be evaluated. Effectively on our past performance, on our technical understanding and approach, on our management, um, and and that we can come in competitively on price, either in an LPTA environment or in a truly best value environment. What do we do to set up the the outline? How do you make sure you are putting together first a compliance bid and second an effective bid? based on that section L and M.
1: So I I start with section L because section L tells us and and I'll caveat that not in all cases but when a when the government prepares a fairly well-written RFP which isn't always section L tells us what they want us to write to what they expect to see in the proposal. They often tell us Each volume, um, the components of each volume, it'll have a table of contents. It'll have the acronym list. It'll be structured with these sub factors. So I start with section L and I extract out the the requirements from the instructions. And then I move to section M and I make sure that section M marries to what they're telling us to write to. So if they tell us in the instructions to write to risks, but when I go to section M, they don't tell me they're going to evaluate risks, then I'm going to, that tells me how much weight to put on each of those sections. When you get into the specific technical requirements, that's when I move to section C And I pull from the Statement of Work or the PWS the specific performance expectations or requirements, and I put those in the outline. So I start with L, move on to M. So I start with the instructions, and then I move to the evaluation criteria, and then into the PWS or Statement of Work to further flesh out that outline. The Section M also, um, as I alluded to, helps me determine if I have a 50-page volume how many pages i'm going to allocate to each section of the outline based on how they're weighting the evaluation right so one thing that surprised me when i started doing proposals
0: because i had done grant writing uh previously i had done you know a whole lot of kind of policy writing but one of the things that surprised me and i didn't i don't think we did very well uh for the first few years of the of the firm But we were going after things that weren't overwhelmingly competitive, so we didn't have to be quite as good at it. But one of the things I learned a little later on is that outline shouldn't necessarily be read the most effectively for how you want to convince them. It has to be read more as what did they say first, second, third? How do I follow the actual instructions of L and M in the in the order that they list them in l Why
1: is that? So we had this discussion with a client yesterday. In order to deliver a winning proposal, you have to be clear, concise, compelling, and above all else, compliant. And so even if we believe that we have addressed all of the requirements, if the government can't find it, if it's not easy for the government to check compliance, you run the risk of being declared non-compliant. So first and foremost, you have to make sure that you've addressed everything that they've told you to address so that you're compliant. And it's funny that you talk about not having done that so well. When I started, and, and for those of you who are fairly new to this, you will discover that the government does not, as a general rule, write very good RFPs and a lot of times the people who have the requirement are not necessarily the people who write the RFP or the coordination isn't great. So a lot of times those things are confusing and you want to present your information in a logical way. L and M are not necessarily logical. So you have to resist the urge to write it the way you think it should be written and always write it to follow sections L and M and the PWS. So even if it's in your mind, the flow doesn't make sense. It's illogical. I want to say the last thing anybody accused the government of was being logical. So follow (laughs) L and
0: M. One of the things that I realized in talking to some of the people who sat on source selection boards, which are the, the, the boards that they pull together on the government side after the RFP goes in to evaluate, uh, different pieces of the RFP. And by the way, some of them are, are not evaluating the entirety of it. So they'll only see the past performance. Somebody else will only see the technical and even only certain pieces of the technical. But one of the things in sitting down with with people who have sat on score selection boards is that they get a score sheet that follows the the criteria. And so if you make it hard for them to score it because they have to search around for it, they're not going to search for it. Um and so that was compelling to me to to sit with them and say, "Oh, I'm making this. I'm giving you I I'm following the same roadmap you're following. Now I understand you're checking a box if I can make it easier for you to check that box, you're
1: scoring it better for me. Absolutely. And so I have while I have not sat on a source selection review board I have um been involved with national uh, quality the national Baldrige quality award program and we essentially get people's applications for this award and we evaluate them and it really is here's the order I expect to see things and make it easy for me to check yes it's compliant yes they did that because the reality is after reviewing two or three and it's rare that they only get two or three proposals they all start to sound the same so you you have to find a way to make it easy for the government to get through your proposal and verify compliance so that they can then focus on the messaging the compellingness uh, the efficacy of the solution that you are presenting and if right. they can't get past Searching through volumes and pages and narrative to find compliance, they can't get too compelling. Yep, that
0: makes a whole lot of sense. Okay, turning to usually there's a time to ask questions in the RFP, the, the time frame for the RFP. Usually, you have an RFP that drops. Um, you have X number of days, weeks to ask questions. How do you effectively leverage that question process and what risks do you have in asking questions?
1: I have found that the sooner you can get section authors preparing outlines and digging into the specifics of the RFP, the sooner you will uncover inconsistencies or identify areas that you need clarification so it's important. It's not just a matter of reading the RFP. Some things will be obvious and jump out. But until you start actually trying to prepare your response for the RFP, you don't always see the more subtle inconsistencies. And, and so you really have to get in. So the, my experience is um, assign a lot of people different areas of the RFP and tell them, Pretend like you are writing the response right now and outline that response because that's how you uncover those questions. If you fail to ask a question and it comes up after the period for asking questions has expired, then you have only to hope that someone else asked that question. Now, the risk in asking questions, especially if you, if you think you know the answer already, is that all questions are compiled by the government, and everyone sees every question. Now, they don't see who asked the question, but every question is presented so that everybody gets the same information. So you could potentially reveal a strategy if you're not careful about how you ask your question. And so the less information you reveal in the, in the way that you ask your question, the better, um, and companies have to decide if t- the risk of revealing some strategy is too great, you know, do we want to ask the question? Right,
0: right. And I've actually seen some questions where people think they know the answer or they want a certain answer, but they ask it the wrong way, and they get the wrong exactly. answer. And then you're just, oh, God, you've got to be kidding. I would always say never ask the question about what size fonts you have in graphics because inevitably – If you don't ask the question and nobody else hopefully asks the question, you can use a different font than in the text, which is usually Times New Roman 12. But I have seen somebody ask the question multiple times. Can we use a different font? Can we use a smaller font? And when they come back and say, nope, Times New Roman 12, now you've got graphics that you have to use Times New Roman 12. And it's darn near impossible to get the graphics looking right with TNR 12. So Absolutely. don't ask the questions the, unless you want the answer and unless you're ready for the answer to be something different. Although you can certainly guide the answer that you want by saying, by, by phrasing the question a certain way and getting to the answer that, that you want them to do. The Absolutely. The absolute thing questions do do is they give an opportunity to what's called in the industry black hat, um, figure out who's coming in on this. And what their strategies, like you said, are, but also just what their strengths and weaknesses might be so that you can, uh, what, what again we call in the industry ghost to them. Um, so you can figure out who else may be coming in. And if it's company A and you know, company A doesn't have a great recruiting apparatus, you can highlight what, what your recruiting apparatus is and, and point out that, hey, you should be looking to see if they're doing it correctly as well or whatever that looks like.
1: Absolutely. So if you know a competitor has um, historically had difficulty retaining um, good people, staffing, um, if you know they've had issues transitioning, those are the kinds of things you would ghost in your proposal by saying, you know, we've never had any cure notices uh, related to failure to staff or things like that, that that then tell the government, hmm, I wonder if we should look at cure notices for, you know, for vendor X or offer X. So, yeah.
0: Okay. I, I think we could go on forever and a day on this because there's so much in proposal writing, but... One last question. In terms of the presentation of proposals, how do you balance, you know, they say we don't want any nice bindings, we're not looking for significant graphics, we're not how how do you balance the text versus the look and feel of the proposal? Is is the government really serious when they say we don't want any charts and graphs and and tables or or any kind of substantial ones of those or are they not? Do you really do you need the graphics? Do you need what kind of things do you use within a proposal to make it easier to view and read?
1: So that's a really good question and you will often see in RFPs the government doesn't want uh, fancy graphics. So yeah, we see that a lot. I I personally believe that they put that in there as a cover my bases because they don't want somebody to protest saying, well, we don't have the capability of, you know, developing all these fancy graphics and polished presentation materials. And so the government is trying to kind of cut that off at the pass and say, well, that we don't want that. However, the reality is that the individuals on the source selection board are human beings. And if you give them 60 pages of pure Times New Roman text, full justify, no graphs, no changes in font or highlighting or tables or or call out boxes, their eyes are going to glaze over. Nobody wants to read that. So it is... In my opinion, critical that you effectively use white space and make your proposals visually appealing. So we bring in graphic artists that brand all the graphics for uh, the client so that all the graphics look similar. They have a a similar look and feel. They have that client's um, color scheme from logos or whatever. We try to use headings of of larger font sizes to break up the text, call out boxes, just to make the page less intimidating and more pleasant to read because, let's face it, a lot of this stuff is very dry reading. I am not the kind of person who says, throw a graphic in there just to break up the page. I am very critical of the graphics that we use. We often see features and benefits tables. I think they are amazing. They break up the text. They succinctly present critical information. But I will tell you that nine times out of 10, the benefits that are listed in features and benefits tables are not benefits. And so I am constantly going back to the section authors saying, if you want to use this, I think it's great. But these are not benefits to the government. Rewrite them. So I guess my point is, Tables, graphics, visuals, call-out boxes, those are all very, very important elements of a good proposal, but they need to be compelling and they need to have a, a reason to be there. Um, otherwise, the government isn't going to read them.
0: Right. Good. Um, and one last thing, because I hammer this home with with all of the small businesses that I talk to, and, and we have been burnt on it, I think, only once before. Um, Delivery of the of the bid uh, mm-hmm. when they say this bid is due at 5 p.m. on Friday into, you know, send via email. What do you do? Do you do you turn it in? Uh, you know, how, how do you ensure that it goes in and is viewed on time? You know, we've had the government come back to us and say, hey, we didn't get it. You know, we didn't get it in time. And and how do you. How do you ensure that that is that 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 is delivered on time, verified, either for an email proposal where you're putting it in on some system or where you're delivering it by hand?
1: So I've seen uh, many different approaches to this. I always build my schedule so that we are delivering or submitting if it's via uh, email or electronically the day before it is due. That's just a given for me. We always try to hand deliver the day before. Um, Personally, if it's within a reasonable drive or a quick flight, we, we prefer to do hand delivery. And my company has done that on many, many occasions for clients. I have also planned to FedEx a proposal only to get to FedEx and find out that we missed the timeline and, oh, guess what? I'm getting on a plane and flying to Panama City to hand deliver. Mm -hmm. Um, We have had proposals that we've delivered to the client that they waited to submit, and then the government system that they were supposed to submit to locked them out at the last second and it didn't get in on time. Um, We've even had a government client or a government customer who was expecting our proposal call us within 10 minutes of the time it was due and say, Hey, we never got your proposal. And when we track it through FedEx, we find out that there was a problem in Memphis with the plane and FedEx didn't get it delivered. So I tell you, always plan for delivery or submission the day before it's due. That is the safest route um, because the government they really don't care what the problem is. Now, in the case where FedEx plane went down in Memphis, we we were able to get documentation from FedEx and the government accepted it. But that that was a lucky that was a lucky draw there. We um, right. didn't have to. Right, and and
0: we've had it where we actually have confirmation of delivery but the government didn't get it at least we've got that confirmation of delivery that read receipt um there there is one contracting office in particular uh where we will call them we will email them we will say can you please confirm delivery receipt and don't get that confirmation from them if you know that to be the case and thank frankly anytime you have to have the, the delivery receipt, the read receipt if you're submitting by email so that you have confirmation that went through their system. And if their system punted it, that's still your problem, but at least you've got some, some documentation on one of our large contracts that, that we put in where it was a, a hand delivery. We had, I want to say four copies and this was a Tampa based, uh, bid for us. So we were already here in Tampa and producing here in Tampa, but we had a copy that was going in, I wanna say the day or two before it was due, um, that, that two of us hand delivered and got a confirmation written from the person we delivered it to saying, yes, this was delivered, I've got it. But we had another copy in an employee on McDill's trunk, in case we didn't, uh, you know, we gave it to them a couple of days, you know, the day before or whatever, they brought it in in their trunk in case we got into an accident on the way to McDill, for example. Uh, we had another copy sitting in the office that somebody could run and grab to make sure that no matter what happened, and this was still a day or two before it was due, that we could get that copy in there. It is Absolutely. up to you to get it. And if you don't get it, it's on you and you've just put that whole proposal together for no reason.
1: Absolutely. Um, And it's, it's even, I mean, not only is it the value of the contract award that you place at risk if you push the deadline, but even more than that, it is some of these bids cost hundreds of thousands of dollars just mm -hmm. to bid. Mm -hmm. Uh, I worked on a, uh, a proposal with a very large company, and their their proposal budget for this particular opportunity, which they had been tracking since the the current contract was awarded five years prior, they had over a ten million dollar proposal budget for the effort. Wow! So when you're spending that kind of money, you don't take chances. You have a dead man's copy, quote unquote, that you fly up, you have another copy that you're driving up. I mean, yeah, you you have all your bases covered in duplicate or right. triplicate. <laughs> quadruplicate, whatever it takes, right? whatever it takes to make sure it gets delivered.
0: So again, I think we could go on forever on how to do proposals. Well, it is a it is an art as well as a science in a lot of respects. And I think Maybe we can we can have another one of these later where we go deep dive into some of the compliance matrices and some of the ways to distinguish yourself and black hat and all that kind of stuff. But this has been really really wonderful and and effective and I hope the listeners really get something out of this, both the ones that that have not written proposals before, but also those of us who are consistently writing proposals, I always learn something in talking to you. So I really appreciate your time on this. And we look forward to talking to you again on some other proposal kind of tips and tricks.
1: Lauren, it was absolutely my my pleasure. So thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Thanks, and you know what, before we leave, what is your company again
0: and what how can they get to you in case they need someone to help them write proposals?
1: We are Strategic Business Solutions. Website is sbsexcellence.com. And you can reach me at leslie.lever at sbsexcellence.com. Awesome. Thank you so much,
0: Leslie. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thanks, Lauren. Have a great one. Thanks.